This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The most senior member of Colorado's congressional delegation, Democrat Diana DeGette, returns to Washington, D.C. in the majority. Democrats now control the House. But tempering their victory is the government shutdown, now in its third week. So what's next and what else is on the congressional agenda? Congresswoman DeGette, welcome back to the program. Always good to be with you. The shutdown is a fast-moving story. We're speaking Monday afternoon, I'll note. Uh, The president has announced he'll address the nation. Uh, Right now, where do you think things stand? Well, we've got to reopen the government. I mean, the whole shutdown of the government was the president's idea. He even said so at the time. And he's shut it down because he wants to get his wall. But not only are hundreds of thousands of government employees being impacted, but millions of Americans are being impacted. So the position the Democrats are taking is open the government and then let's figure out what to do about real border security. We know that we need border security, particularly at the ports of entry, which is where most of the illegal drugs come in. But to shut down the government for three weeks, because you want a wall that everybody agrees won't work to be built, seems to be a very poorly thought out and harmful approach. I want to play you this from NPR's Morning Edition. Uh, It's from conservative writer Jonah Goldberg, editor of the National Review. And he's discussing how the wall isn't purely bricks and mortar. It's very difficult to compromise on a something symbolic. For Donald Trump and his biggest supporters, the wall is symbolic of his presidency. It's symbolic of the reason why he was elected. And if he backs down on that, it's basically a major cave of the whole sort of MAGA agenda. So when I say it's symbolic, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's that people are now investing elements of their sort of identity and their worldview into this fight. MAGA, make America great again. And he argues this is just as symbolic for Democrats. Is Jonah Goldberg right? Is this why the two sides seem so entrenched? Because it's it's not about the wall. It's like about the idea of the wall. Well, actually, for Donald Trump, this was his mantra when he ran for election. And this is how He appeals to his base. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, a minority of Americans think a wall is a good idea. Most Americans, while they support border security, just like the Democrats in Congress, they think a wall is a bad idea. Uh, You know, I, I, I said to someone the other day, as a Democrat, people don't always think of me as the party of fiscal responsibility. But what I say is, Why would I say to Donald Trump, because he's throwing a fit and closing the government down, I'm going to give you $5 billion to build a wall that all the experts agree won't work when we could spend less money than that, have more effective border security, and have a better message to the world? Okay, you've said all the experts, everyone agrees the wall is a bad idea. What what do you base that on? I've Well, all of the evidence I've seen says that the best way to enforce border security is a combination of electronic surveillance. In some places, you need to have personnel. In some places, you may need to have some barbed wire or some fencing like that. And in some places, you might need to have a wall. I think everybody would be able to sit down together and say, We all share the goal of good border security. How are we going to make that work in the most cost-effective and efficient way? 
You noted earlier that this was just a huge part of Donald Trump's campaign. To that end, I want to ask you, isn't the wall a mandate? In other words, this was a man elected in no small part because he wants a wall built. If Democrats are resistant to that, are they resistant to the forces that brought this man to the White House? Well, I'm not sure everybody voted for Donald Trump because of the wall. And as I said, right now, a minority of Americans, a small minority, think a fairly small minority, think that there should be a wall. A much larger number of Americans think that we should have robust border security. So you talked about the effects of the shutdown on uh, certainly government workers and on constituents. I wonder if you've heard from constituents specifically asking for relief, telling you their plight, and if you might share that with us. Well, Colorado, of course, we have a lot of federal workers here in Colorado. We have a lot of public lands. We've been hearing from constituents about conditions in the national parks and in some of the national forests. We've also heard from uh, workers who are concerned they're not going to be able to pay their rent. What do you tell them, or what do you have your staff tell them? I'm doing my best to open up the government as quickly as possible. Last week, we passed bills which the Republican Senate had already passed, but then they didn't pass in the Republican House before the new Congress. So we passed the same bill in the House that they had passed in the Senate, but now Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump say, no, they're not going to do that bill. So this week we're going to start passing a whole series of bills, starting with reopening the um, financial sectors so that people can get their tax refunds back. That's going to impact millions of Americans if they can't get their tax refunds, Uh, the IRS and those agencies. And then we're going to start trying to reopen those other agencies. One of the ironies of this shutdown is many of the agencies that are shut down have absolutely nothing to do with the border security issue. Any sense if uh, Mitch McConnell will support such a, a kind of a narrow reopening? Well, we're beginning to see more and more senators understand that their constituents are being harmed. Of course, our own Cory Gardner last week was one of two senators who announced that we should just open the government and then talk about what to do about border security. I'll say that CPR News had a conversation last week with Cory Gardner, and yours is one of a number of voices of the delegation we're hearing on this issue. Uh, Diana DeGette, is it strange to be getting a paycheck yourself while many other government workers are not? Well, some would argue about whether I was an essential worker or not, but I am working hard (laughs) to keep the government open. In the past, what we have done is we have compensated the people uh, retrospectively who were not paid during the shutdown. And what I have said is I expect that those federal workers will be compensated, and also I expect that the federal contractors will be compensated. And I want to make sure that will happen. And, And if we don't compensate those federal workers, then I won't take my paycheck. The contractors, that's interesting, because they've often been left in the lurch, I think, after previous... Right, we're going to try to compensate them, too. We've already introduced legislation. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the congresswoman from Washington, D.C., has a bill on this, and there are others, too. But, But surely the federal workers should be paid in retrospect, and they always have been in the past. Congresswoman Diana DeGette's our guest. Let's talk about the 2019 Congress, which uh, indeed convened last Thursday. Some other noteworthy things to discuss. Speaking of President Trump on 60 Minutes over the weekend, 
A first-year congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said there's no question that Trump is a racist. Uh, This comes on the heels of another freshman, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who expressed in somewhat profane terms her desire to see the president impeached. Uh, Do you agree with their approach, which is, I suppose, as straightforward as the president's? Well, I think that these new freshmen, which is the largest freshman class since the 1970s, really are bringing in a new approach and a new um, a new way of thinking. And I, I think that always really um, is helpful to have the new thought. I may not have used some of the same words that, that Congressman Tlaib used, but I, I think that really Donald Trump is kind of a poor critic of that kind of language, given some of the language he's used. And I also will say... I do think Donald Trump is a racist based on his tweets, not just since he's been president, but when he was running for president. What else do you hope is on the House's agenda in the coming weeks? Well, the first thing we have to do is open the government. Then the next thing, we have a bill that we've put together. It's a broad attempt to what we say drain the swamp. It's campaign finance reform, ethics reform, making the voting rights act whole again, and a whole bunch of um, uh, things we really need to do to restore the American public's faith in Congress and to make sure that we're running an open and fair and transparent Congress. And then after that, I'm going to be the chairperson of a very important subcommittee, the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee of Energy and Commerce. I'm going to have subpoena authority and all of the testimonies under oath. I'm going to be looking at climate change. I'm going to be looking at prescription drug prices. And the very first hearing that I'm going to have is around um, the kids at the border and the way HHS is treating them and the administration's policies and how we can have a policy towards refugees, particularly children, that's going to be more humane and more American. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us. Great being with you. Take care. Democrat Diana DeGette of Denver is the senior member of Colorado's congressional delegation. We discussed the ongoing government shutdown and the new session. Democrats now control the House of Representatives. The White House has sent its own assurances that the IRS will process refunds if the shutdown continues. Tune in to CPR News tonight. We'll carry the president's address live scheduled for 7 Mountain Time. Vaping and e-cigarette use among teenagers has been in the news a lot lately. The U.S. Surgeon General recently issued a rare advisory calling teen e-cigarette use an epidemic. He called for aggressive steps to fight it. And as we've reported, Colorado tops a list of states surveyed for teen vaping. Coming up, advice for parents, teachers, even pediatricians. First, CPR health reporter John Daly examines what's behind Colorado's high rate. The marching band and cheerleaders in the South High Auditorium in Denver make this seem like a pep rally. But then two students take the stage. Um, And today we're here to talk about the issue of vaping and juuling in high schools. Vaping and juuling. They're talking about teens smoking e-cigarettes. Students wave bright-colored signs that say, no pods for my squad, and don't cloud our future. Then the guest of honor arrives. Outgoing Governor John Hickenlooper and his team launched a campaign last fall to get the word out about the danger of e-cigarettes. 
He reminds the high schoolers that a single pod of vaping fluid can contain the same amount of nicotine as a pack of cigarettes. They've got appealing flavors and candy-like packaging, uh, devices to be easily hidden, so the teacher turns to the blackboard and somebody can grab a quick vape. Vaping is so invisible it does happen in class. It's odorless and doesn't have to create a lot of smoke. More than a quarter of Colorado teens surveyed say they currently use an electronic vapor product. Some say social media has made vaping cool. We have naive minds and it's easy for us to just kind of to do without thinking about the consequences. And, you know, it's kind of also seen as a social status in the teen community. I think there's a major lack of knowledge we have in our community and that's why I think vaping is a big thing here. That was Zoe McCoy and Marwan Nasser, both seniors. Another senior, Colleen Campbell, says even though it isn't legal for stores to sell e-cigarettes to minors, it's easy to buy them. She says teens think e-cigarettes are safer. But Campbell thinks there's another reason Colorado teens are vaping so much. I think the fact that we have legalized marijuana and thus it is something that is more normalized within our like state and our society is one of the reasons that we're one of the number one states. One of the state's longtime tobacco prevention advocates, Bob Doyle, thinks the students are onto something. I think in Colorado that we have what I would call a perfect storm. Doyle says the timing was just right. As state voters legalized recreational marijuana, the e-cigarette industry started to take off. It spent $100 million in national marketing. And Doyle says more young people began using a vaping device to smoke nicotine or pot or both. We've commercialized marijuana more than any other state and probably more than any place in the world. Part of that is we've seen a boom in the marijuana vaping commercialization as well. We asked Governor Hickenlooper if he thinks marijuana legalization helped spike teen vaping in Colorado. I mean, there very possibly could be a a connection. Jewel Labs, the dominant e-cigarette company, declined comment about what's driving Colorado's teen vaping wave. It's taken out full-page ads nationwide saying its products are not for teens, but adults looking to quit smoking. Under pressure from the FDA, it recently announced new steps to limit teen vaping. Meantime, the pot industry has questions, too. What are today's youth in Colorado consuming? Christy Kelly is executive director of the Marijuana Industry Group. Kelly questions drawing a connection between legal cannabis and teen vaping increases. Also, Kelly says, if the rise in vaping were driven by marijuana, you'd expect youth pot use to go up, too. But Colorado didn't see that. Kelly says surveys show teen marijuana use in the state has been relatively flat since recreational pot was legalized. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that kids are interested in accessing it. The health department is studying why the teen vaping rate is double the national average. Tobacco communication specialist Allison Reedmore says there appears to be a link between teens who vape and other high-risk behaviors, including pot use. The vaping prevalence uh, is much higher for kids who engage in high-risk sexual activity compared to kids who don't. It's the same thing for binge drinking. Good afternoon, and welcome to Children's Hospital Colorado. Some of the state's health and tobacco prevention leaders used a recent event to say public policy is driving teen vaping trends. R.J. Hours is with the ACS Cancer Action Network. He says Colorado was an early test market for vaping products, as well as edible and dissolvable flavored nicotine products. I think we had a head start, at least. I think they were available earlier here. 
than they were in markets across the country. So we've had a little more time for this product to grow, quote unquote, in the market. Several mountain communities in Colorado have raised the age to legally buy tobacco from 18 to 21. But ours says Colorado has no comprehensive statewide regulation of the sale of tobacco products. And thanks to a 45-year-old law, it doesn't license the retail sale of them. We don't even allow local governments to do that. In fact, there is a state preemption of that with a fiscal penalty on communities that do try to regulate the sale of tobacco products. Another key, prices. Colorado cigarette taxes are relatively low. It doesn't tax vaping products at all. That makes them pretty cheap for teens. A pack of four Jewel Pods costs about $16. It's the nicotine equivalent of four packs of traditional cigarettes that would cost about $24. Jody Radke with the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids says the lower price draws more people in. Youth respond most heavily to taxation and price increases on tobacco. Tista Ghosh, the state's interim chief medical officer, says the state needs to act quickly. She worries that vaping tobacco and other stimulants will become a social norm for a whole generation. In the 1960s, about 45% of U.S. adults smoked. It wasn't about a certain group. It was the norm. And Mad, I, mad men. It was mad men. And I don't want us to be the mad men of vaping. If you're going to ingest something, stick to oxygen. Back at South High, the outgoing governor asked students to take responsibility for their health. He leads a chant that's probably a first for this auditorium. Hickenlooper wants students to question why big companies want to get them addicted. He urges these kids to do something teens often do well, rebel. All right, what should parents, teachers, even doctors know about teen vaping? Three guests are here to help us break that down. Dr. Heather Hoke is a pediatric pulmonologist. That means she specializes in lungs at Children's Hospital Colorado. And uh, Dr. Hoke, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Don Daniels is a teacher at Chatfield High School in Littleton. He runs that school's tobacco education efforts called the NOT program, which stands for Not on Tobacco. Hi, Don. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Ryan. And a voice you've already heard, CPR health reporter John Daly's in the studio. John is also the parent of a high schooler. I can't help but think your daughter is mortified that we just said that on the radio. She's (laughs) delighted that we've now told the state all about it. I mean, what's fascinating to me about your report, John, is that kids might do this in class and teachers are none the wiser. So I think it's important to talk about what these devices look like. Don, you, you've brought some show and tell for us. Uh, this is radio, but help us understand just how discreet these are, you know? Well, this is the Juul, which is the number one vaping product. and Looks like it, a USB drive. Yeah, and that's actually how you charge it. You can actually insert it into a computer and provide the, the energy for it. And one of our teachers last year, Ms. Bruce Finn, who teaches across the hall from me, saw a student using this for the first time and was mortified that, you know, we don't even know what these look like as educators. So it was a big leap in education to share with teachers what these devices are. That's a jewel. A Soren looks like a credit card. Oh, yeah. And a MePod, also very easily and stealthily used. The MePod actually looks a bit like a lighter itself, I exactly. suppose. But the point is, if, if any of this is near a kid's mouth, you have to wonder what they're engaging in. True. And the devices now are concealable in what's called vapeware. The vape companies actually market sweatshirts, 
um, and other pieces of clothing, which you can utilize with these devices and inhale through one string of the hoodie and exhale through the other string. Of oh, my the goodness. Oh, so and, and it's stealth is critical. Smokeless. Correct. In this case. OK, we'll post some photos to CPR.org for folks to take a look. I'll say I was just at a convenience store this morning and I realized I recognized the cigarettes and the chew. But half of what's in the convenience store in terms of tobacco delivery is kind of a mystery to me. Uh, as John reported, students in some cases are using these in schools. Where are they getting them, though? It's a fairly easy transaction, just like it would be if you were doing an illicit drug. Older students or brothers and sisters over 18 can purchase the devices. They'll give their younger brother or sister a handful of the devices, and they'll sell them at a markup to their friends. Or you order online and have it delivered um, to an Amazon locker, having used your brother's ID to confirm age. Oh, but there is commerce, in a way, going on on campus, you think? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Dr. Heather Hoke, again, a pulmonology specialist. Uh, So the perennial question is, are e-cigarettes safer than traditional cigarettes? Should we be somewhat relieved that they're not smoking the traditional cigarette? I heard a really great analogy that that I I wanted to pass along. So, you know, I I think about it talking to kids like this. Driving 100 miles an hour down a highway with a seatbelt versus without a seatbelt. Neither one is safe. The seatbelt may be a little bit safer, but neither one is safe. And that's what we think about e-cigs, especially for kids who are nicotine naive, who have never picked up a cigarette in their life. It's it's not a, a safe alternative for them because they weren't previously smoking cigarettes. What are the health risks, especially for young people? And what might they be down the road? Because I'm thinking, you know, their adult lives are affected potentially as well. Absolutely. You know, I think there's a lot of key health risks. One is that one thing that a lot of kids don't know is that there's nicotine and potentially high levels of nicotine in these devices, which some kids were not even aware of. The nicotine effects on developing brains are significant. Kids um, at this age are highly um, susceptible to addiction. So we're creating a generation of kids who are addicted to nicotine. Hmm. And then those kids are then four times more likely, based on some studies, to then go on to smoke conventional cigarettes down the road, which we all know are you know very dangerous to, to our health. So um, there is, there's the risk of that. The other risk is that there's all of these chemicals in these different devices. You know, I saw a statistic that there's over 7,000, I think 7,700 different flavors of these devices available. And so all of the different chemicals that are in these devices have to be studied individually to look at their individual health risks. But we know that there are some chemicals in these devices that we know of that are potentially really dangerous to kids' health. Not only are the chemicals dangerous, I mean, we're talking about things like antifreeze or oh. um, a, a chemical that is related to um, a disease called popcorn lung that we saw in in, um, in people who worked in popcorn factories over you know years ago. So this is really uncharted territory Absolutely. in many ways, especially for young people and the effects on their health. Absolutely. And then we think about the effects, you know. 10 years down the road because we assume that they're going to be addicted and then continue to use these for long periods of time. John Daly, you've been covering e-cigarettes and teen use a lot lately, and you you still seem uh, just bewildered by some of this um, and the rate of it in Colorado. How did you happen onto this story? You know, it's really interesting because I heard from a, a parent of one of my daughter's classmates 
And they told me this is happening a lot at his school and kind of like what Don described, that kids were doing it in class. They were doing it in the bathroom. And uh, I, I cover the health beat. I thought I was pretty well informed and mm-hmm. I, I just did not realize how ubiquitous it was. So have you had the conversation with your teen Yes. As I've been covering this, I've been uh, sharing my stories with her. I played back a long interview I did with one of the people I talked to on an earlier story who had, was really worried about the health impacts because he had been uh, vaping now for maybe five years. And yeah, so I have been talking to her about it. And uh, and it, it's definitely a, a, something that, that uh, um, I think Maybe the kids aren't as worried about as the, the they should be and as their their parents are. And that was reflected in your story, just the naivete that may come along with youth. Don Daniels, what should parents and what should other educators be on the lookout for? What's the most convincing message for young people, do you think? Well, what the industry has done is successfully lower the threat threshold. And what what does that mean, the threat threshold? Cigarettes were an easy villain. Cigarettes were easy to understand. They were easy to identify in usage, both public and private. And the health effects were astounding and dramatic. With these new devices, the education curve needs to move very, very quickly in terms mm. of getting parents uh, and administrators and teachers aware of the potential health conflicts for kids while the research is still going on, because this is going to move exponentially faster in terms of gathering information on these products than it did with cigarettes. So have you found there to be a message that really resonates with young people where they go, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think of that? Um, my my background before I taught government was actually as a chemist. And when you actually start sharing some of the chemistry uh-huh. of what this does inside of your lungs, as Dr. Hoke was talking about, coming from her medical perspective, it's pretty easy to give students an understanding of the chemical reactions that are happening in their bodies with these devices. Gross them out. Absolutely. No, that's an absolute uh, trigger. Dr. Hoke, what about uh, physicians? What should they know? And do you think this is being talked about enough in pediatric circles and, you know, family physician offices? I think that more and more it's being talked about. I think we're becoming more aware. And certainly the numbers that came out recently from Colorado were a big wake-up call to everyone. alarming. Twice the national average, John reports there. Yeah. And so I think the biggest thing I can say for for pediatricians and and other providers is to know what you're, you know, asking them. So don't ask your your kids, are you smoking? Because many kids may say no, because they equate that to traditional cigarettes. Oh, interesting. So ask them, are you vaping? Are you juuling? Kind of educate yourself on the lingo um, about that. And then also to educate educate parents on resources that they have if they are concerned that their kids are vaping or juuling or using e-cigarettes as well. Like what? I mean, we're talking about addiction in some regards here, right? Absolutely. I think we're absolutely talking about addiction. Um, So there's a couple of different resources that can be really great for parents. Certainly your provider, your your pediatrician or your family practitioner is one great resource. Um, Healthychildren.org from the American Academy of Pediatrics has a lot of great resources. Uh, Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. And then the Colorado Quit Line. So um, if you call 1-800-QUIT-NOW, they've actually just um, lowered the age range that they treat through the Colorado Quit Line down to age 12 because they're recognizing how significant this epidemic is, even in middle schoolers. 12-year-olds absolutely are addicted to this stuff. Absolutely. How hard is it to quit? It can be quite difficult to quit. But I think if you can have an open discussion with your kids about it, if they feel comfortable coming to you and letting you know that they are using these devices, um, and if you can kind of have an open um, you know, level of suspicion that um, and, and no 
knowing what you need to look for in your kids to find out if they're juuling or vaping, um, then that can start these conversations that can help help get them towards quitting. John, there is some research into what messages work for young people, right? What can you say about that? Yeah, that's right. There's uh, something called the Colorado Youth Tobacco Survey, and it found that families with clear rules where parents know where their child is, the child's less likely to vape. If, if a student feels like they can talk to their parent and, and get help from them, that may reduce the chances that they'll use. I, I think a good message is make good decisions. So you give them some of this information, kind of like what Don was saying. But on their way out the door, you might say, okay, make good decisions today to your child. And you can't be with your child all the time. And so really passing along this health information and hoping that they'll, that, that they'll you know, Take some of that in and make make good decisions for themselves. I think is kind of a good way to go. Don, do you think that kids like it because it looks cool? What, like, what's the appeal? The is appeal, it just the peer pressure. Any kind of nicotine and tobacco use has always tended to be a very social activity. Mm. You see groups of people outside smoking. Well, now you're seeing groups of kids in a park vaping. They can be off campus from school at lunch, and you'll just see pockets of five to six students, and you'll just see that rise of the vapor from them as they even share devices or, you know, get other people um, into the group to utilize the devices. It's that deep teen desire to belong. Thanks to all three of you for being with us. You bet. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So you heard from Dr. Heather Hoke, a pediatric pulmonologist at Children's Hospital Colorado, Don Daniels, a teacher who runs tobacco education efforts at Chatfield High in Littleton, and our own CPR health reporter, and really cool parent, John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Teachers in the state's largest school district are on the verge of a strike. That's if they don't reach an agreement on bonus pay. Negotiations in Denver public schools have been going on for more than a year, as CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine explains. Thirteen years ago, voters established a system for teacher pay and incentives. The incentives were based on a formula and varied year to year. Teachers want more than higher salaries. They want to simplify the incentives. Teachers worry the incentives are too complex and question their effectiveness. Jess Schneider teaches at Knoll Community Arts School. Every year we hire five to ten new teachers with no teaching experience. She spoke at one of several large community strike meetings in December. The incentives used to attract and retain teachers are not working. Teacher Kurt Scheiman says pro-comp incentives are also unreliable and unpredictable. There's no real way to figure out what you're going to be making from one year to the next. And in fact, from one year to the next, you could 
take a pay cut. In fact, three years in a row, he saw a thousand dollars cut in his paycheck. He's not sure if it's because more teachers qualify for the bonus, making his slice of the pie shrink. There are several kinds of bonuses, like if you work in a hard-to-fill position like math, or if your school achieved high academic growth and high test scores. I ask him which bonus he qualifies for. I have absolutely no idea. That's another problem. Teachers say because DPS changes the way it measures school performance, they aren't really sure which incentives they're getting. Teachers want a bonus to be a simple set number, and they want higher base salaries, too. Many can't afford to live in the city they teach in. I'm a 30-year-old man. I would like to get married and buy a home and have children. And as long as Denver Public Schools continues to compensate their teachers the way that they do, that's just not really an option for my future. The district says its research shows incentives have helped retain teachers in high-need schools. It points to an 86 percent retention rate. DPS's new superintendent, Susana Cordova, is convinced by her own experience in high-poverty and wealthier schools that incentive pay is important. The work that I did in a high-poverty school was a lot harder. State figures, however, which include charter school teachers, show Denver has one of the highest turnover rates among front-range districts. The union's proposal is around $31 million in new money. But Superintendent Cordova, who attended the large strike meeting in northeast Denver, says voters' rejection of a statewide school funding measure in November will make it hard to give teachers that much. My goal would be able to pay all of our teachers significantly more. That's going to be challenging until we have a state fix. In the meantime... I think we've got to have a both-and solution where we're increasing the money that we put into base and still incentivizing people to work in, you know, our highest priority schools. In December, the district proposed adding $11 million in teachers' base pay and less in bonuses. That would come through central office cuts and more money in the new state budget. But... Is it enough to give teachers peace of mind in a city that's unaffordable? Every teacher I know is constant. We have to look at job boards. Teacher Paula Zendel. We love our jobs. We love our students. We don't want to leave them. But we have to do that because we can't earn enough money to live in Denver, Colorado right now. She notes that salaries are higher in Aurora and Littleton, but both have lower costs of living. Henry Roman, the head of the teachers' union, says Denver has more bureaucratic layers than other districts. They are definitely able to pay, but right now they are not willing to pay. So they need to reprioritize their budget to close that gap between their proposal and our proposal. Last year, the legislature gave DPS more money, and he questions where it went. Budget documents show half did go to compensation and half went to legally required money for charter schools. Ron Cabrera, who was interim superintendent until yesterday, said the district may be able to find efficiencies elsewhere, like by standardizing bell schedules to save on transportation costs. Because we have extra costs given that we have so many differences across schools. So we can actually capture millions of dollars that way, too. Now, that's a change of practice. And... Not everyone will be happy about that, but at the end of the day, the investment of teachers will help. Bargaining resumes today. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Details make stories come alive. I mean, we could tell you that someone was kidnapped and forced to march in the cold, or we could tell you this. We were starving to death. We were always shivering. and you know, Our teeth were super sore from chattering all the time. 
So that's Colorado climber Tommy Caldwell talking about being held hostage in Kyrgyzstan in 2000. And that snippet comes from WNYC's Snap Judgment. It's a show coming to CPR News in our weekend lineup this month, part of a larger revamp of our schedule. And we want to introduce you to the host of Snap Judgment, Glenn Washington. And Glenn, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me here, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah, that clip of Tommy Caldwell talking about how he and his friends endured six days of captivity. It's harrowing. What kinds of moments are you looking for in a story? We're always looking for moments where people are kind of put off their guard, where, you know, all of a sudden now it's time to get real. It doesn't have to be, you know, that you're hanging on the side of a mountain or in some grave danger either. All sorts of different types of moments really let us see the real person who's, who's speaking. You describe snap judgment on social media as storytelling with a beat. What does that mean, with a beat? It means that we're very, very serious about sound, um, maybe more so than any other program you're ever going to hear. As a speaker is telling their story, we want to put you in their world as best we can through every single sound uh, trick in our toolbox. And that means music, that means foley, that means everything. Um, to create this whole immersive experience listening to Snap. When you say Foley, those are the kinds of sounds that uh, they had in, like, old radio theater. Yeah. This is kind of a, we call it movies of the mind, cinema of sound, uh, storytelling with the beat. We definitely cite our the evolution of what Snap has become back to some of those old-timey sort of radio theater moments. What's the strangest thing you've used to create sound? Oh, uh, we're doing everything in here, Ryan. Uh, the, the sound squad itself is amazing. And it was funny when we first started Snap. I used to make sound myself until the pros came in and they kicked me out of the booth. But, you know, I'd be, you know, squawking sounds. We'll Sometimes we need a crowd. We'll have to have, have the entire crew jam up in the booth and holler and yell. <laughs> um, who can make a duck noise? It just depends on the day and the story. Did you find someone to make a duck noise? We sure did. You did. Okay. <laughs> okay, Glenn Washington of Snap Judgment. Another Colorado story your team did was about a headless chicken. Let's listen to this. He put it in an old wooden apple box, set it on the back porch, and the next morning he got up and the thing was still alive. He was amazed that, you know, that's been alive for almost a day now. This shouldn't be happening. It wasn't until day three that people started realizing how bizarre it really was. The chicken ended up living for 18 months. How did Snap Judgment wind up doing a story about Mike the Headless Chicken, uh, who has a festival in his honor in, in Fruta, Colorado? You know, that's a good question. I know the um, producer who did that, Joe Rosenberg, however he scratches his curiosity itches, I will never know. <laughs> but the story of the Headless Chicken we got so much feedback, people who didn't believe it, people who thought that we were celebrating um, some sort of cruelty, people who um, wanted to try it themselves with their own chickens. It's one of those stories that you can't help but want to talk about it once you hear it. Your rise in public radio traces back to a contest you won. Will you tell us about that? Sure will. It's a long time ago, like 10 years ago now, and I heard about a contest, and it was the superstars of public radio, they said, who's hosty? And it was Terry Gross, it was uh, Ira Glass, Jad Abumrad. And like a lot of public radio listeners, 
I just want to preserve my right to complain, you know? The reason why you're sending your dues. And so I sent in a two-minute clip, and I forgot about it. And about three months later, I get a call back from the contest organizers saying that I was one of ten finalists nationwide. But I knew better. I thought it was my buddy Mark playing a joke on me, so I hung up the phone on him. And they called back and said, who's Mark, and what's going on, and do you want to do this or not? And to make a long story shorter, um, they started giving us these various things to do, these, uh, these quests, these trials, until finally it got down to three people, and they said, make a pilot. And I did. This is something I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear. After I made this pilot, of which I was very, very proud, my first, I'd never been in radio. I was in um, nonprofit management. I made this pilot. I was proud. I finally got some sleep. I woke up the next morning, and I got a phone call from the contest organizers who said, and I quote, you've embarrassed me. You've embarrassed the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You've embarrassed NPR. And you've embarrassed yourself. And that's how I started in public radio. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was in a fetal position wondering what in the world happened. And... I don't I, It's like one of those things where it was an amazing stroke of professional generosity. A woman, her name is Holly Kern, and she's now running things at the San Francisco radio station KQED. But she gave me my first professional listen. And she said, you know, you're a really good storyteller. Pretty crappy radio producer, but a good storyteller. And she went through and kind of gave me that, you know, like I said, she told me some of the things I had messed up on. And I just thought, you know, we're going to fix this just so that we can sleep at night. And Mark and I went through everything and just sent it back into this black hole that was a contest. A few months later, I got a call asking us to come to uh, Washington, D.C. From there on, I kind of pitched the show and they, they dug it and eventually we were able to launch. That's how Snap Judgment was born then? That's how Snap Judgment was born. Now, it was, we got lucky. We got lucky because this is funny. I shouldn't even be telling you this. But this is what happened. When we first got a little bit of uh, starter capital to start Snap. They, we didn't have any radio stations that wanted to play the show. We didn't have any distribution agents. At the time, there were three big public radio companies. One was NPR, other was PRI, and the other was APM. So I called them all up. Hey, would you like to play Snap? No. PRI, no. APM, no. That's the, and, um, and so um, we didn't have a distributor. And I was watching this... Um, this Don King movie about how he got the fight, the thriller in Manila going. Huh. When he didn't have Ali, he didn't have, he didn't have anything. He basically told everyone that he, that he had it. So I called them all back up after I watched the movie. I called up uh, NPR and said, hey, um, PRI and APM, they're really interested, but I thought I'd give you one more chance. <laughs> and I, I called them all up, all the rest of them up, told them the same thing, and thankfully NPR bit. We launched on NPR in 2010. Mr. DJ, if you please. 1943. Southern India, a young mother rocks her feverish child as he screams in pain. She fears he won't make it through the night. Even as relatives pile wood for the boy's funeral pyre, she hears a knock on the door. Standing there, a traveling monk, robes tattered, bends towards the young mother and says this. If someone, anyone agrees to accept the child's illness as their own, I can save the boy's life. Glenn, thank you for being with us. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's big fun. We can't wait to be on Colorado Public Radio. It's going to be awesome. Glenn Washington is the host of Snap Judgment, which you'll hear weekends on CPR News, starting later this month, Saturdays at 1 and Sunday nights at 8. Hearing Glenn talk about Mike the Headless Chicken made us think back to that bizarre moment in Colorado history, which, as I mentioned, is still marked by a festival in Fruta on the Western Slope. I spoke with self-described weird historian Mark Hartzman last May about the event's origins, and a note, the conversation includes some graphic descriptions. Mark, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Surprisingly, you've written about other headless chickens, but tell us about what I think is the most famous one, Mike. (laughs) Mike is definitely the most famous of the headless chickens. He lost his head in 1945, and it happened uh, in Fruta, of course. It was a farmer named Lloyd Olson, and his wife had asked to have chicken for dinner that night. So he went outside into the yard, and he grabbed who would become Mike with the intent of making him their dinner. And he swung his axe, um, but the blade had just missed the jugular vein, and it left the brain stem in place. A blood clot helped prevent him from bleeding to death, but the head was gone, but the chicken was still functioning. It was still pecking around for food and strutting around, and Olson was just standing there, you know, clearly in amazement that he just chopped off the chicken's head, and it was still alive. He felt some sympathy for this chicken, and also some, again, you know, amazement that this thing had this will to live. So he decided to embrace it, and he was able to keep it alive by feeding it liquids and grains through an eyedropper. Huh. How, how long did the chicken live? Well, the chicken lived for 18 months. Um, and so it became a bit of a, a national phenomena. So, of course, you know, locally, everyone was amazed by this. But Olson realized that, that other people would like to see this kind of a chicken as well. So he ended up hiring a manager, and they went on tour, and they basically put on a sideshow with Mike the Headless Chicken. Uh, He was known as the Headless Wonder Chicken. So this went on from everywhere from New York to Los Angeles, where people could line up, they could pay a quarter, and they could see this headless chicken strutting around, (laughs) becking for food. Um, Again, it's something that, you know, no one had really seen before. So it was quite a phenomenon, and and they made quite a good amount of money. I can imagine that some think the kinder thing to have done would have been to put the chicken out of its misery. I, I, I can't say that the chicken was miserable, I suppose, but uh, that's speculation on my part. How, how did he, <laughs> How did Mike finally meet his demise? Well, they were on, on this tour, and they were at a motel one night, and the chicken he started to just choke. And Olson couldn't find the eyedropper that he would have used to, I guess, help clear the esophagus. And uh, sadly, he choked to death. And that was the end of Mike. It, was, it seemed like a bit of a, a freak thing, uh, no pun intended there. But uh, I think he would have lived perfectly healthy for much longer had he not just happened to choke at that moment and not had, and Olson had not had uh, his tools to, to help him survive. So this is well documented. Have you seen like photos? Yeah, he was, I mean, he was so popular that he was even in Time and, and Life magazine um, with lots of photos of him. And you can see, I mean, you see uh, Olsen holding the head and then the chicken right next to him. It's it's a pretty phenomenal image. And as we intimated in our introduction, not the only chicken to have survived this way. That's right. It's It would seem that it would be, but uh, history shows it's happened a few other times. The earliest case is that I was able to find was from 1883. 
And in this case, it was actually done on purpose. There was a doctor who was trying to create a headless rooster. And he was talking to a reporter, and he told the reporter that he was going to show that both politicians and roosters without heads can live in this free country. <laughs> so he was on this mission to just make a, make a point, I suppose. He used his instruments, and he very delicately and carefully took off the chicken's head, keeping the brainstem intact. And it worked. The chicken was continuing to walk around afterward without, uh, you know, without sight or thoughts or feeling, as he described. Um, so, so he was able to actually perform that uh, on purpose. Well, thank you for sharing this weird history with us. It certainly lives up to its name. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about uh, the weirder side of life. Self-described weird historian Mark Hartzman is author of American Sideshow, an encyclopedia of history's most wondrous and curiously strange performers. We spoke back in May. This year marks the 21st annual Mike the Headless Chicken Festival in Fruta. Finally today, Colorado's new governor, Democrat Jared Polis, officially starts today, and his inaugural ball features pop legend Cindy Lauper. For a few brief moments, it seemed the press wouldn't be allowed to stay for any of the evening's performances. That seemed off to us and to a lot of other journalists. I mean, what if the new governor said something worth reporting? But Polis's team came back saying they'd negotiated with the artists' people and the press could stay, just not videotape or photograph the show. So thank goodness for the change of heart. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.